This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Good, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Our title for today's talk is taken from the hymn When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, but before speaking about the words of the hymn, let's first look at the writer, talk about the writer Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a schoolmaster and he was born in Southampton on July the 17th, 1674. He's said to have shown remarkable uh, development in childhood, even by today's standards. Beginning the study of Latin in his fourth year, and writing respectable verses in Latin at the age of seven. At the age of nine, he studied Greek. When he was 11, he studied French uh, and, and Hebrew at 13 years old. So uh, when he was 16, he went to London, study of, uh, the London study in the Academy of Reverend Thomas Rowe, an independent minister. And in 1698, he became assistant minister of the Independent Church in Berry Street in London. And in 1702, four years later, he became the pastor there. And it was during this move when, on 1707, at the age of 33, Isaac Watts first published his book of hymns. At that time, it was the practice of almost every congregation of the church to only sing Old Testament psalms in their public worship. However, Watts had grown to dislike this because it restricted the Christian from being able to sing of those aspects of the Gospel that are in the New Testament. Um, Lord and Lady Abney attended the Mark Lane Independent Chapel in London, whose pastor was Isaac Watts by now an eminent minister uh, and a hymn writer. All that now remains of this chapel is the tower shown here. In 1712, the Abneys invited Watts to spend a weekend with them at their estate. Isaac accepted and became a permanent house guest in Abney House, living with them for the next 36 years until his death. He assisted Lady Abney in the design of the land and the landscaping of Abney Park in Stoke Newington. The church of, uh, uh, of that park is shown uh, on this screen. The number of Watts publications are very large. The first hymn he said to have composed for religious worship was written at the age of 20. Some of his hymns were written... Um, to be sung after his sermons giving expression to the meaning of the text upon which he'd preached and some were written for children he has indeed been called the greatest name amongst hymn writers and his published hymns number more than 800 in 1728, 20 years before his death both the University of Aberdeen and of Edinburgh honoured him with a doctoral degree. 
Isaac Watts' greatest composition must surely have been the hymn that we're talking about today when I survey the wondrous cross. It's been called the very best of uh, the very best hymn in the English language. And in it, Watts, using only a few lines, paints a soul-stirring picture of our Saviour's death on the cross, coupled with a wholehearted response of the believer to such amazing love. Somebody else said, It seems to me that Isaac Watts wrote this text as if he was standing at the foot of Christ's cross. Well, when I survey the Wonders Cross was first published in Watts' 1707 Hymns and Spiritual Songs collection, the first real hymn book in the English language, he headed it with the text, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a quotation taken from Galatians 6 and verse 14. The hymn is recognised uh, as the first hymn to be written using the personal pronoun I, as a personal testimony rather than a proclamation of scriptural doctrine. In its first 1707 publication, the hymn's second line originally read, Where the young prince of glory died. In an enlarged edition of the hymnal in 1709, Watts changed this second line to the now familiar On Which the Prince of Glory Died. And it's been like that ever since. The first line of some of other of Watts' hymns are on the screen now. There's lots of them that we might know. High in the heavens, eternal God. O God, our help in ages past. Sweet is thy work, my God, my King. And many more uh, hymns were written by Watts. Watts died in, on November the 25th, 1748. And he was buried at Bunhill Fields in the London borough of Islington, north of the city of London. A monumental statue was also erected in Southampton, his birthplace, where there is also a monument to his memory, there's also a monument to his memory in the South Choir of Westminster Abbey. Also this grand statue of Watts with his Bible, the Word of God, in his hands was erected in Abney Park, where Watts, as I've said, lived for the last 36 years of his life. When I survey the Wondrous Cross has been sung with several different melodies and tunes. In the UK, it's generally sung by Edward Miller's 1790 tune, Rockingham. Edward Miller was an organist and a composer, and he first published this tune in 1790. As a young man, Miller was apprenticed to his father, a layer of paving stones, but he ran away to study music, and at one time he was the flautist in the George Frederick Handel Orchestra. On the 25th of July, 1756, he was appointed organist of St George's Minister, Doncaster, and continued in this post for 50 years, during which time he composed hymn tunes and harpsichord sonatas. Cambridge University awarded him a doctorate in 1786. 
Miller named his tune Rockingham for his friend, patron and British Prime Minister Charles Watsworth Wentworth, Charles Watson Wentworth, the second Marquis of Rockingham. And Miller died at Doncaster in, on, the 14, on the 12th of September 1807. But of course his music lives on today. Let's now look at the biblical meaning between these um, of these words. The hymn begins by saying, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. There's of course nothing wondrous or wonderful about a cross, but the death of Jesus, the Son of God, is indeed wondrous. It speaks of the love of God for us and the love of his Son. Why then did Jesus have to die? Well, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, <coughs> according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Scripture tells us that Jesus lived a sinless life, and then he bled and he died on that cross of shame for us. The Bible explains why Jesus' death and resurrection provide an entrance into God's kingdom. But as I've said, we are all sinners, and God justly could have wiped us off the face of the earth because of that. But he wants us to live in the peace and the tranquility of the kingdom so much that he gave his son for us. And we'll speak more of that later. But first of all, we must go back to the beginning of our Bibles, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God originally created mankind so God could love them, and he could fellowship with them, and so that they could love him. As a perfect loving creator, he's worthy of that glory. We were created quite literally to be God's children and to worship him. He wanted to love us, to care for us, to be with us just like parents do today with their own children. And Adam and Eve were created by him and God deeply loved them. God also desired that they would love, honour and worship him. A perfect loving creator is worthy, as I've said, of such adoration. But in order for there to be true love, there has to be a freedom of choice. Had God just forced Adam and Eve to, to obey him, to love him, by creating them automatically to do so, like robots, they would have only been loving God because they had no other choice. It wouldn't be a true expression of their love. God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and verse 17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Simply he gave them a free choice. Now Adam and Eve could choose to show their love for God by choosing to obey him, 
or they could choose to disobey him by eating the fruit. By not eating of the fruit, Adam and Eve were also proving that they trusted God enough to do as he had commanded. Until they had eaten of that fruit of the tree, their relationship with God was a very close friendship. Adam and Eve were truly God's children, and he loved them more than they could possibly know. How long Adam and Eve lived like this before disobeying God, we're not told. But in the course of time, we see them disobeying God's commands and eating of that forbidden tree. Incidentally, we're not told in the Bible what sort of tree that was. And God killed them and said that, they, as he said, you will die if you disobey me. Well, no, he didn't kill them. The sentence of death for their sin was delayed by our loving God. He'd said, if you disobey me, then you will die. But the sentence of death was delayed by our loving God, so that they had a time to turn back to following God's ways again. He could have brought about the sentence of death immediately, but in his, God, in his love God made them coats of animal skins, thus bringing about the first sacrifice for sins. God, of course, had no choice but to expel them from the garden, lest they ate of the tree of life and live forever as, sin, as sinners. But through it all he never stopped loving them. In fact, he loved them so much that he wanted to give them a second chance to be able one day to come back to him. He didn't have to do this. He had every right to destroy them for disobeying him. But he loved man far too much for that. And eventually Adam and Eve themselves died. Death is God's just consequence for sin. Romans 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. Even good works can't make up for our, the things we do wrong against the holy God. Compared with his goodness, our, all our righteousness are as filthy rags, as Isaiah says. And ever since Adam and Eve's sin, Every human being has been guilty at some time of disobeying God's righteous laws. All, although God banished Adam and Eve from the garden because of their sin, he didn't leave them without any hope. He promised that he would send a saviour to defeat the endless curse of sin and death. Until then... Um, men would have to sacrifice innocent lambs to show their repentance from their sin because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So in the Old Testament times God asked the people to give animal sacrifices that the people recognising their sins had a way to show that they wanted to be reconciled to him that they wanted to be forgiven of their sins. 
The animal sacrifices were horrible and disgusting so that man would hopefully see their sin was the same in God's eyes. It was the closest God could come to making us understand how our sin and our disobedience looked to him. Not just any sacrifice would do. It had to be the most perfect lamb possible. God demanded that only the most perfect livestock could be an acceptable sacrifice. I suppose this was only fair, considering how much he originally had given them and how often they disobeyed him. But God loved them enough to forgive them. Through sacrifice and obedience to God, men could be able to be in God's kingdom here on the earth after their death. Their sins were covered by the death of the animals. But this state of sacrifice and offerings was only temporary until the time when God's Son would come. Until then, men sinned daily. And they had to offer their sacrifices for those sins. Hebrews 10 tells us it's not possible, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Consequently, the Levitical priesthood had to keep on offering sacrifices, not just for the sins of the people, but for their own sins too. They had to sacrifice over and over again, year in and year out. And these things look forward to a better sacrifice planned by God through his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus came to die for our sins. And as the animals sacrificed in Old Testament times were perfect, so Jesus also lived a perfect life. Although he was tempted to sin, the Bible tells us that he never actually sinned. God knew that the only way, that only a sacrifice from a man like that could hope to bring us back to him. God could think of only one saviour that would be perfect enough to accomplish all that, his very own son. And God himself proved provided the only sacrifice, Jesus, who could die for the sins of the people. From Adam and Eve, Jesus, Adam, from Adam to Jesus, God sent prophets to mankind, warning them of sin and lovingly foretelling of the coming Messiah who would overcome sin. One prophet, Isaiah, described him and his sacrifice the 53rd chapter of Isaiah says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And verse 5 goes on to continue. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here Isaiah likened the coming sacrifice of Jesus to a lamb slaughtered for the sins of others. And hundreds of years later, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. When the, prophet, when the prophet John the Baptist saw him, he cried, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And crowns thronged to him to he for healing and for teaching. But the religious leaders of the day scorned him. At his death, the mobs cried out, crucify him. Soldiers beat, mocked, and did indeed crucify him. As Isaiah had foretold, Jesus was crucified in between two criminals, but was buried in a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And what hymn says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? John says in John 15 verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. But Jesus didn't remain in the grave. Because God accepted his lamb's sacrifice, he fulfilled another prophecy by raising Jesus from the dead. Praise be to God that he kept his promise to send and sacrifice the perfect lamb to bear the sins of those that trust in him. Jesus could die for our sins, for your sins and for my sins because he because of his perfect life is the only one who can redeem us from our sins you see ladies and gentlemen God being just and holy can't lie he said to Adam and Eve so long ago if you sin you will die but God loves us so much that he was willing to let his only son suffer as he did in order to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Since Jesus was sinless in every way, he was all that was required for us to be saved from eternal death, that we might be raised to life again in God's kingdom of peace when his son returns to the earth. By the sacrifice of his son, God also eliminated the need for those horrible animal sacrifices that were required previously, year after year, up to that time. The only thing we have to do now to be forgiven for all that we've done is to acknowledge that our sin separates us from God, the God who loves us enough to want to make us his very own children. To admit that we've sinned, 
to ask for his forgiveness and to ask him to take over our lives providing that we've uh, proving that we've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus made on our behalf and proving our love for God by living the way that Jesus told us to do in God's book, the Bible, the truth about God. Jesus said in John chapter 15, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, he says, if ye do whatsoever I forgive you. If sorry, if you do whatsoever I command you. So how then can we come to know Jesus as our Saviour? Well, firstly, we have to admit that we have at times turned away from God through our sins and through disobedience. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of that glory of God. This simply means that nobody is good enough to come to God as they are and everybody needs to be forgiven in his love we have to admit that we are sinners we have to ask God to forgive us through the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ Jesus himself said I am the way the truth the life no man cometh unto the father but by me the bible tells us that if we ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ and we truly mean it God promises to honour that and accept us back as his own children the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shouldn't perish but should have everlasting life no wonder what hymn says were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small love so amazing so divine demands my, my soul my life my all but unfortunately Man's biggest problem is his separation from God. God doesn't want it this way. The ultimate goal of God is to destroy sin and its consequences once and for all. And he wants us, through belief and through baptism, to have a place in his coming kingdom of peace and of the wonders of that time. Baptism is a subject dealt with many times on this platform. Time forbids us for talking about it in detail. The Apostle Peter calls it the answer of a good conscience towards God. And by belief and by baptism we are guaranteed a place in God's kingdom. And it says... Uh, of that time in the last book of our Bible God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away the word grace 
means the undeserved goodness and mercy of God. And we, although we might have sinned, if we come to God and ask for his forgiveness, by his grace, by his goodness, he is ready to forgive us if we resolve to follow God's way once more. The word of God says, by the grace of God we can be presented faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So even when we sin, God shows his love for us by forgiving us. If we in prayer ask him to, and ask for that forgiveness, and try once more to follow Jesus. Well, we said when we were considering uh, Adam and Eve that we were created quite literally to be God's children and to worship him. He wanted to love us, to care for us, to be with us just like parents do today with their own children. We were created by him, and God deeply loves us. God desires that we would love and honour and worship him. And in the finality of things, this will happen in the kingdom of God, set up by Jesus when he returns to the earth again. The whole earth will be transformed. There will be no more war. There will be no more pain and no more suffering. And because of this, there will be no more need for drugs and pills. I've had a cold lately, so I've got a pocket full of paracetamols. In the kingdom, I won't need the paracetamols because there will be no more pain. And because there will be no more pain, there will be no more need for hospitals. And the hospitals throughout the lands will be closed. No more need for them. Eventually, there will be no more sin, and finally, there will be no more death. And all the world will finally love and honour God, their Creator, as God brings peace over the whole world in the Kingdom of God. And the earth will experience oneness with God, like, like there was so many years ago in the Garden of Eden. Well, today we've looked at the words of what's him, and we've seen the love of God towards Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We've seen the love of God towards Israel, and we've seen the love of God and of Jesus towards us, ladies and gentlemen. Many men and women in times past appreciating God's love tried to follow in his ways and by God's grace will be rewarded with a place in God's kingdom when Jesus returns back to this earth. But the question is, will we? Jesus died on that cross of pain for us. And that inspired Isaac Watts to try to live a Christian life and to write this hymn When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, 
My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mindled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God's love is infinite, and it will endure forever. But what it means for each of us depends on how we respond to his love. That love, ladies and gentlemen, is unfailing. It's everlasting. It's limitless. How will we, ladies and gentlemen, respond to the God of love for all this? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website. Ormskirk Christadelphians.org.uk